Welcome to episode 73 of FRT, the IF podcast on the intersection of finance, risk and technology. I'm Brad Carr. I'm over on the Virginia side of the Washington DC area and with guests today joining us both from across the Potomac and from across the US. We're going to discuss the Open Digital Trust Initiative, a really fascinating new development that we at the IAF are collaborating on with some leading thinkers and practitioners in the digital identity space. Across the river in Bethesda today, we're joined by Don Thibault, the Executive Director of the OpenID Foundation. And over in California, Rod Boothby is the Global Head of Identity in Santander's platform business in the San Francisco Bay Area. Both are leading thinkers who first got me excited about this initiative, and we're going to talk more about that here today. Also joining me as my IAF co-pilot, Daniel Puhathan is around the corner from Don in the Bethesda area also. Rod and Don, welcome to FRT and thanks for joining us. Thanks. Good to be here. Thank you. The IF is collaborating with the OpenID Foundation and many of our member firms, officials and various other entities in supporting this new initiative. It's an interoperable and open source development with the objectives of introducing foundational trust into the global digital economy. And that's really what we're going to talk about more here today. Uh, and of course, Rod and Don are two of the great architects of this initiative. To start, though, I want to put it a bit in the current context, and I think just about every single conversation I've had for the last six weeks, really, maybe longer, around the world with different people, both in officialdom and amongst our member firms, every conversation has really gravitated to the subject of digital identity. And I want to get your thoughts, firstly, Ron, and then also Don. How do you see the COVID-19 experience is amplifying this focus on digital identity? Well, the challenge that we're facing is how do we deal with somebody that we haven't met, somebody that we haven't been able to, in an old and traditional method, build trust with, somebody we haven't shaken hands with. And what we're seeing is in the COVID era, that's obviously a challenge, but it's also creating a situation where people need to reach more broadly and move faster. And what we're seeing throughout the bank and throughout all of our customers People need to move much faster in order to adjust to the changes in the world. In order to do that, they need to be able to trust each other. They need to be able to build that rapport. And one of the challenges has been they're just meeting a new counterparty. How do they work with that counterparty? How do they establish trust with that counterparty? That uh, establishment of trust is not happening in the in-person form that it, it previously did. Don, from your perspective, how do you see that the COVID experience has influenced and amplified this issue? Well, Brad, as you said, it's certainly amplifying problems or challenges that were already in the ecosystem or in the marketplace or in society. As Rod said, it's also accelerating work that we have to do. So I think COVID really impacts folks at two levels. One is we think the pandemic and the economic disruption is disrupting how we validate or verify someone's identity. And kind of the the onboarding piece or the the front door of identity systems is what we're calling know your customer. So we have to come up with new ways of standardizing knowing your customer without the benefit of face-to-face in-person proofing. So the work that we've chosen to do as part of this initiative really looks at a open global standard, a revised standard for what we call EKYC, knowing your customer well. And this moves across financial services but it really does redound to the security and benefit of the individual. And the individuals are the ones that are likely to suffer the most in this economic disruption caused by the pandemic in the form of identity theft. The organizational side of that is in financial services where we want to protect against the misuse or breaches of money moving internationally. 
So the second piece of focus is really on the financial API standards, where we can have a common standard adopted across national boundaries and industry sectors so that we can further secure the movement of money from one person to another, one organization to another as it crosses international jurisdiction. So I guess it's both accelerating and amplifying, but it's also reaching an important need for collaboration across organizations and industries. And that's why I think the IAF work is well-timed and I think important. This is Daniel. Rob, typically all of the projects that you are running start with that identification of the problem or the situation you are trying to solve. If you can expand a bit more on how once you have identified the situation you're trying to solve, what is the trigger that makes this initiative come to life? I work on a team that deals with onboarding new customers. The work that we have to do to make sure that we know who the new customer is is really substantial comparing an enormous amount of data that the person has to share with us and that we have to source elsewhere in order to be able to confirm that that person is who they say they are. And then as a bank, we have to invest very heavily in making sure that we can re-identify that person. We use crypto on the device. We use facial recognition, fingerprint recognition. We use angles that you hold the device. We use a huge number of things that I can't talk about publicly to make sure that we are confident that the person who's at the other end of this particular transaction right now is who we believe them to be. We do that to make sure that we protect our customers' finances and to protect ourselves as an institution. What we need to do now is to think about how we can extend that. And that's how this kind of evolved. It's interesting. It's followed a very similar pattern to the way that things evolved within Amazon and the development of Amazon Web Services. There, they started solving internal problems and then realized that they could turn those around and make them available to a broader audience. We have situations internally where we have to be certain that somebody is initiating a transaction or approving a transaction. And the transaction can be something related to moving money or something as simple as changing your address. In all of those cases, we need to make sure that we've got the right person involved. So can we take that secure customer authentication service and that secure knowledge of who that person is and the big investment that we've put into it? And it's the same with all of our fellow banks around the world. Can we take that and make it a generalized service to help people bridge trust? The challenge with trust in general is identity is critical, but you also need to be able to know who the other person is. In other words, you need to know who is my counterparty and how they'll behave. It's a combination of both identity and risk. And what we're doing is to provide with this initiative a way of allowing people to express that they are trustworthy without turning over all of their private information again and again and again. Today, I'm sure that many of the listeners here will know what it's like to take your identity and have to show it again and again every time you check into a hotel, every time you log into a new site, every time you establish a new identity within a new service. Rather than doing that, what we want to do is to deliver that generally as a service. That's the history of it. I think our listeners will be quite intrigued when we get to talk a little more about some of the, the practical use cases uh, for what you've described there, Rod. 
But I think before we do so, we should just clarify a little bit further about the broader context. And, and Don, it would be great to hear from you here about the OpenID Foundation, the background of the OpenID Foundation and its role here. And I'm particularly conscious the point you made that really what we're seeing from COVID is amplifying things that were already there, that were already underway. And obviously, the OpenID Foundation has a, a longer history of working through a number of these issues previously. But could you give us the quick snapshot of the OpenID Foundation? Sure. It is a team of rivals. Among the board and the membership are some of the most important and largest tech platforms in the ecosystem. Companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft and others, both large and small, as well as individual developers, startups, and entrepreneurs, find at the OpenID Foundation common cause. And that common cause is open standards for the identification of people along the lines that Ron talked about. So the OpenID Foundation really is a technical standards development organization that's really working on the plumbing that is part of the identity systems that uh, we've talked about and those that are under the most pressure. So OpenID Connect is a piece of uh, code. It's a standard that's been adopted globally. And by doing so, it allows each development to be sensitive to the privacy and security concerns of a given community or a given jurisdiction. So in short, OpenID Foundation is involved in the plumbing of identity and the plumbing of authentication for individuals and organizations and processes. And we've been focused on it for the last uh, 10 years. And we're particularly excited by the challenge, Brad, that you've given us, which is to make practical progress, tangible progress by the end of the year. And that's what we intend to do on the technical track. Thank you so much, John, and we'll have more time in order to expand more on the initiatives. So, Rod, I would like to go back a bit to what you were mentioning before. You were talking about the problem you were trying to solve with this initiative. This is super interesting to understand how this initiative comes up. Uh, I would appreciate it just to provide some level of detail. You could talk a bit more about some use cases, some concrete example scenarios with the audience. Sure. There are three types of scenarios we're trying to address. Verify identity, verify data, and verify authority. With verify identity, I need to know that the other person on the other end of this transaction is who they claim to be. Say, Daniel, that I'm buying property from you. Some email address purporting to be you sends me wire instructions saying, here's where you need to send the payment for the property. This is a large piece of property and a lot of money for me. I want to make sure that that's really you. The second part where I talk about verifying data means, are those wire instructions correct? Am I sending it to the right place? And so what I'm looking for is a service that can say, yes, this person is who they claim to be. And yes, that data is what is correct. So we can use it for payments. We can use it for people sharing data that they need to on a regular basis, such as applying for a loan or applying for a job. And then the final one is verifying authority. Is, for instance, is this woman really the CEO? Is she really legally allowed to sign legal agreements on behalf of this corporation? Is this guy over here really in accounts receivable? Is that a real invoice? Are those real wire instructions? Or is this other guy over here really in the call center, is he really representing the cable company and is he really trying to help you with your TV? In each case, it could be a vector for fraud or a way that somebody could somehow jeopardize 
your data or your finances. And this is a way of adding assurance on top of it to make sure that you're comfortable that the other person is who they purport to be and that the data they're sharing with you is what you expect it to be. I think Ron's point is good. If we want to make change in systems, we need to change two things, two code bases, if you will, the code that is in the software itself. And by using an open standard for that computer code, we have the ability to extend and scale up the kinds of solution sets or the new standards that underlie the changes that Rod's outlined. The other set of code is really the code of policy of regulators. It's the code in contracts. It's the text in policy. What we're trying to do in this initiative with IIF's unique leadership is to unify those two sets of code so that the technical standards are aligned with changes in new policies and new procedures like those that Rod's described. So I think that's the exciting opportunity that we have is to simultaneously align these two changes and come up with a solution that serves everyone. Absolutely. Rod, I want to continue with a little of what you were describing with some of the the scenarios, but I also want to talk a bit about the main elements of this initiative as opposed to some others and perhaps also how it may integrate or be interoperable with others. But I think perhaps before we do that, if I could just probe a little further with you around some of those scenarios. And Don referred earlier to EKYC, and I think that's a big part of the ultimate direction where we want to be able to go with a lot of this. There's a lot of things along the way as well, aren't there, that are perhaps more commercially tied in in some of the imperatives. You gave me a great example when we were discussing a couple of months ago even about the, the UK lotteries and the scenario where the lotteries needs to establish that the consumer is both a resident, uh, has a UK address, as well as being above a certain age. We talk a bit about the scenario now that we're in the COVID world and we're getting everything delivered, that when we're ordering our alcohol, we need to show that we're above legal age, that you must have a lot of merchant businesses, presumably merchants that are customers of Santander and every other bank in the world, that need to be able to verify these things about the consumer's profile, but they don't necessarily want to retain all of the raw data on that. And I think a bit about the data privacy, data protection requirements in the way that Scott Farrell, who wrote the Australian Government's Open Banking Report, talks. And he talks about how, you know, data is not so much the new oil, but rather it's the new uranium. It has a half-life, it decays in its value, it has different value to different people but also that you have to store it, you have to protect it. And I'm sure a lot of small businesses and the like don't want to have to do that. They don't want to receive a a date of birth or an address that they don't need. So one of the features I think you've really highlighted and got me excited about is where a bank can solve that problem for that small business by being able through these secure APIs to be able to provide an answer of yes to those questions without necessarily providing the raw data underneath. So I was wondering if you could perhaps react or or build on the way that I'm thinking about that as being, I think, one of the really compelling elements of the project, as well as the features in terms of of how the initiative is open source and interoperable. Yeah, exactly right. It is all about protecting privacy. Too often, if you take those exact scenarios and you think about what people have to do in order to be able to prove their identity, they have to share way too much information today. Look at a hotel. I have to check in with my passport, which means they have my full biometrics, they have my full address, they have almost everything they need to steal my identity. That's expensive for the hotel store. You're exactly right. I love the metaphor of uranium because big hotel chains have lost a lot of money in being hacked and then being sued by their customers. We want to be able to allow a customer to prevent that. And a big part of what our cooperation with OpenID has been around 
is how can we answer questions in a way that preserves and protects privacy? And in the end, as a bank, that's a big part of what we do. Banks are not in the business of selling or distributing data on our customers. We're not in the business of monetizing our customers' data like an internet company might be. Instead, we're in the business of helping them to succeed and thrive by offering them a service that is simple, it's fair, and something that they can easily understand how to use. And in this case, you've hit the nail exactly on the head. What you want to do is to protect your privacy, but still be able to share the information you need to. And so the genius of the protocol that was developed internally, mainly by a guy called Alberto Pulido, was to figure out how to make generalized assertion claims. This person has a balance over X. This person is a resident. This person's age is greater than whatever. Answering simple generalized facts rather than sharing full details. And then that way we protect your privacy. I think it's a really important point. And Rod, it resonates with me in a couple of different ways. You know, one is that you know, we often see about any great new innovation, great new step towards digitization, that sometimes there's the fragmentation of different approaches. And sometimes that leads to a discussion about can a government stipulate the particular direction and others who would quite understandably take the view that government should be technology neutral and not mandate a particular technology outcome. So it is contingent upon the industry to show some leadership around the development of standards exactly in the way that this entails. You know, what you've outlined also fits with the inexorable direction of the digital economy and that we're going to see more business conducted, more finance conducted through platforms, that we have banks that are well respected in the way that they protect data. We often cite back to the, the great uh, Bank of England Future of Finance report last year that overwhelmingly identified banks as the most trusted parties with, with consumer data. It's how do you stare into that digital economy and look at how you leverage that trust and that record with consumer data. And, and that's where I think it's such a, an exciting initiative. So I might pivot now for the remainder of our conversation to talk a little bit more about the practicalities and what comes next. And we have both technical and policy work streams mobilized in this initiative between the OpenID Foundation and the IF. And Danielle, could you tell us a little bit about the structure of those work streams? Before going to that, just let me say that obviously digital identity has been a priority for the IEF for the last month, and we have been active in, in this arena. We have published a number of papers on that, and we have actually collaborating with the Open ID Foundation Santander and the other IEF member firms and officials over the last month. Uh, we actually profiled this Open Digital Trust initiative in our last paper of the three-part series on, on digital identity. So it's been a while now for, for us. This initiative objective of introducing foundational trust into the global digital economy, as you were already mentioning before, is creating a kind of vibrant marketplace for digital trust services that help individuals and entities to confirm identity and to understand and manage risk. And this is important because we understand digital trust as a function of digital ID plus risk management. This is going to be represented in the, in the, in the work we're going to be doing. In order to actually develop this project, we have mobilized two specific work streams. Each of them is going to have the respective working groups. The IIF is going to be leading the policy development, which we can probably elaborate a bit later. And the Open ID Foundation is leading on the technical standard that has the goal that Tom was mentioning, of having some updated version of this standards available by 2021. But probably, Don, if you can elaborate a bit more on the technical protocol work stream, Happy to. Again, there are two work groups in this 
technical track. One is on EKYC, which we talked about earlier. And the second is the financial grade API standard. And that, as Brad mentioned, really talks about the communication and the movement of data between different financial institutions and other organizations that are acting as stewards of our data. Or in the case of banks and financial institutions, are acting as the transmitter of data from point A to point B at the direction of the consumer. So the great benefit we have here is that we're building on two work groups that are already underway, building on something that's built. And we're accelerating development in the EKYC and the FAPI, the FAPI workgroups, one aimed at identity theft, the other at more robust information exchange between banks and other financial institutions. So those two workgroups are underway and now are powered by the IIF's initiative. Let me just say what's said before, that these are open workgroups, open in three ways. One, that anyone at any time can join at no cost. All we ask is that you make a simple statement that you're going to protect the IPR of a open standard, which leads me to the second point. These are very diverse working groups. Global experts in technology are contributing their both human capital and also financial capital to sustain the work of the foundation and move these standards forward by 2021, our objective. And in that context, it's best idea wins. So we really do have a diverse set of technologists that are contributing to a standard that we think will be a global one, an interoperable one. And the third is usage. The resulting standard, whether it be EKYC or FAPI, will be available to all organizations at no cost, with no commitment of licensing fee or other legal commitments. So the openness of participation, the openness and diversity of contributions, and lastly, the openness of the resultant standard is something that we take great pride in and something that fits hand to glove with the work that is being done on the policy side. It's a great initiative. And as you say, Don, you've got a, a lot of great history and established momentum there to be building upon. And in common to that, as Daniel outlined, we have the, the policy initiative in parallel to that with four working groups. And Daniel, could you tell us a little bit about those four working groups and, and how interested parties can get involved? Yes, absolutely. On our side, the, the initiative that the IAF is leading is policy trust initiative. And this initiative has the goal of supporting projects, wider objectives by developing policy recommendations, requirements, and guidance for both public and private stakeholders with intention and ambition to publish something tangible by Q4 this year. The guiding principles are will define the policy recommendations scope have already been agreed. And now we're in the process of creating specific mini working groups in order to develop the content of each of the principles that we have. As Brad was mentioning, we have agreed on four guiding principles for this. The first one being customer-centricity purpose. And basically what we're trying here is uh, kind of have a balanced approach between the focus of protecting, protecting the rights of, of the individual, control privacy, and so with the, with the perspective among all the stakeholder interests, whether they're individual, societal, or corporate. It, it seems that whereas in the in the EU, the they have gone like heavily in the notion of individual's privacy being kind of paramount. Perhaps other jurisdictions, such as in the case of Asia, they talk a lot about the need to balance the individual's privacy with broader societal interests. And we need to ensure that we get a balance in, in this specific point. The second principle is about the liability on the legal frame. And it's focused basically on creating a market-based mechanism for addressing liability legal frames of reference, etc. The third 
um, guiding principle and, and, and working group we will develop is about interoperability. This has been extensively covered throughout the, the conversation. So basically with other initiatives such as of self-sovereignty and across geographies, basically to see if there are other frameworks to leverage, to reconcile, in order to not reinvent the wheel or um, leverage as a concordance mapping across platforms to demonstrate interoperability and common values across sectors and countries. So this is super valuable. And the fourth principle is the, what is going to be the role of governments of the public sector and academia? Uh, again, and uh, taking the words from Don on the on the technical um, perspective, we also aim to have uh, the broader perspective, the broader number of participants here, public and private, from many different member firms and other tech companies or whatever. So as long as we have the wider in the in the in the working groups in order to develop the principles, they're going to be much better and much uh, more complete. We already have a good number of participants for each group, but if anyone else is interested in doing so, in participating, I would encourage you to contact either myself, my colleague Brad Carr, or my colleague Nina Lodge, and we will ensure that, that you are represented in the working groups, especially in the working group of reference, that you have the ambition to develop this work. As I was saying, we intend to be this as much balanced as possible in terms of participated entities, jurisdiction, etc. And just one last remark to uh, reinforce what Don already said. Uh, the participation in, this, in, in each of these working groups and the deliberations are open to all and don't have any cost or obligation. That's a great point to emphasise. And as you say, uh, Danielle, you know, we've had uh, really impressive momentum with the number of firms and different agencies and, and entities that have already sought to participate in these working groups. But it is open and inclusive to all, both across IIF members, but also official agencies and other parties, including uh, a number of other associations and, and tech firms and the like around the world. So to conclude, I might just see if I can summarise a few of the key takeaways that have really stood out for me from this conversation. And I will then pause and just invite Rod and Don to add anything. It's a very diverse sector you can see, and I'll let them highlight anything that I've missed. But I think it's important we firstly see the context that the COVID experience is amplifying what was already underway. And that's a theme we've talked about in other areas, including the, the trends we've seen in payments, the move towards cashless and contactless payments, the increased use of cloud, the increased emphasis on the ability to move data across borders and the like. There's a lot of things that trend towards digital transformation have suddenly been amplified, and this is another one of those. The importance of common APIs and the move towards standards that industry is, is able to take a leadership role in and proactively help the development of standards and common APIs to enable all participants. I like the way that Don describes the OpenID Foundation as a, a team of rivals, rivals that find common cause and where the, the use of, of open standards and working on that plumbing. It again reminds me of the point I made of how governments often rightly, I think, seek to be technology neutral. It needs industry to step up in the development of standards and it's uh, it's really pleasing to see that happen. Uh, Rod made the point that, that banks are not in the business of monetizing customers' data. It's a theme we've talked about a lot as part of the COVID adaptation. We've had Torsten Klein-Buning make this point on FRT, and also First Rand's CRO, Jaco Grobler, made this on one of our webinars recently, that the protection of customer data and the ethical use of customer data is, in fact, a, a positive differentiator as we move into an increasingly digitized world. But at the same time, 
whilst we are not looking to monetize customers' data in that way, there are lots of opportunities to perform what I think is an increasingly essential economic function in the digital economy, utilizing well-protected data. And this is where I, I like the way that Rod referred to the opportunity to build a new class of services built on trust and on the relationships that banks already have with their customers. I do want to return to that point about EKYC, that, that ultimately there will be, I think, a lot of opportunities for new benefits in the KYC and AML space that will come from this initiative, but there'll probably be a lot of other initiatives with commercial benefits that will come to before we ultimately uh, crack perhaps the, the EKYC prize. And lastly, to again emphasise that, that this is an initiative that is open and inclusive and that all are welcome and that we look forward to further contributions and further diversifying the base of this around the world. Rod and, and Don, if I could ask you sequentially, anything final that you'd like to add? I just wanted to say thank you to the IAF and to the members for being open to this idea and to Don for being open to this idea. As we first started to think about this, we asked ourselves a simple question, how do we create global adoption? How do we create a standard that lots of people want to work with us on? And OpenID, which is used more than 2 billion times a day for people to log into all sorts of things, was a natural partner. It was great that they were so open to thinking along these lines. And the IAF is an amazing organization for the caliber and the scope of people they can bring together. So I wanted to say thank you for that. And let me add to that as a way of seeing the IIF's leadership here as really critical to bringing two communities, technologists and policymakers together in a common cause to improve in very practical ways, in a very determined timeframe, ecosystem health, as well as incentives for participating organizations. And most importantly, greater privacy and security for individuals as they transact with other organizations online. Our challenge of who interoperates with whom and how is straightforward, but we can't do that without a collaboration across borders and across communities. And that, to me, is the defining characteristic of this initiative. Well, Rod and Don, firstly, thank you very much for the contributions you've made throughout this initiative so far and beyond and for the, the leadership that you've each provided. And thank you for joining us here on FRT. It's been great to have your input and you've been very generous with your time and your insights. So thank you. Thank you both. Looking ahead on FRT, we're going to speak with Pablo Urbiola, our former colleague, but now back at BBVA in Spain, and he's done a great recent paper BBVA published on big techs and financial services. We're also going to continue on the theme of data policy and some of the ethical use of data issues that we've alluded to here. We'll build on some of the points that we discussed on episode 71 with Torsten Kleinbuning at Deem Finance in Dubai, and also episode 66 when we spoke with David Hardoon in Singapore. So looking ahead, we're going to be joined by Tanvi Singh, the Chief Analytics Officer at Credit Suisse and explore these issues further. And we also have an episode coming up, one that I promised a long time ago with Google Cloud to talk about their exciting new Google Anthos initiative that's going to assist in terms of the portability of data between different infrastructures. So please join us again for those upcoming episodes. This is Brad Carr and Daniel Puhafel signing off for FRT.